It's that time of the week again. You are about to participate in a great adventure. It's that time when the latest episode of Digital Kill the Radio Star drops. Drop? What the hell do you think you're doing? It's time to waste another hour or so with David and Chris. Oh my God! As they spout out more of their worthless music knowledge. I wouldn't do that if I were you. It's time to hear them discuss the music of their youth. It's the gift that keeps on giving the whole year. As well as the music of today. Excuse me while I whip this out. So kick back, relax, and have some fun with David and Chris. Who are those guys? Digital Kill the Radio Star starts Come on, quit stalling! All right, everybody, welcome back to the Digital Kill the Radio Star podcast. Hope everybody has had a good uh, a good year and enjoyed our uh, year-end episode with our top uh, 10 albums of 2020. We got a lot of good feedback on that as usual. Uh, Chris is sitting this one out. As you all know, he does not like talking about albums in their entirety, so uh, uh, he's going to sit this one out, and everybody knows I love doing that. And so uh, I couldn't have two better people on here to, uh, to help me with this. They're both uh, returning guests. Uh, first, my my partner in crime from the State of America podcast and the Classic Wax podcast, Mr. Ian Rice. Hello, everyone. How are you doing, David? I am well. How about yourself? Uh, you know, same old, same old. And then we have uh, Jason Johannes, who came on to discuss um, uh, the Oasis uh, B-Sides album, um, The Master Plan. And uh, since then, he has part of a podcast called All Things Blues and Southern Rock. Mr. Johannes, how are you? Hey man, I am doing well. Thanks for having me on. Glad to be speaking to both of you guys. Well, since uh, since Ian has been on here a few times and, and he's discussed uh, Classic Wax, which everybody can uh, find on um, po- Apple Podcasts, uh, SoundCloud, all your places, Classic Wax Podcast. Um, tell everybody a little bit about all things blues and Southern Rock and where they can find you guys and what you're up to. Awesome. Hey, thanks for giving me the time to, to pitch the podcast. I appreciate that. And Truthfully, I would not be on that podcast as it was for both of you guys being an advocate and getting me on some of yours and making me comfortable on this platform, so thanks. Um, All Things Blues and Southern Rock, it's dedicated to really um, promoting and showing bands that are still carrying on with blues or Southern Rock, but also some bands or artists that have contributed to the history and culture of Southern Rock and blues music at the same time. Um, Brian Jones is the creator and the host of it. I'm co-hosting with him, I think, from episode 11 on. I think we're about up to episode 20 at this point now. And you can find us on Amazon Podcasts, Spotify, a couple other locations. I don't think we're on Apple. I think we're struggling getting things on Apple. But go to Spotify, go to Amazon, or or your other major platforms. You can hear us there. It is not easy to get on Apple Podcasts. <laughs> Ooh. I mean, it's just kind of it's, – it's so, it's so ridiculous because, like – 
Spotify, you just submit the RSS feed, boom. You know, Stitcher, boom. Uh, everywhere else, it's not an issue. And then Apple Podcasts, man, they have so many checks on that. Um, it's ridiculous. So I, I, every time I've, with this one and with State of America, it just took me forever to, you know, to get on there. But hopefully you guys will get on there because I promise you, like, if you get on there, your, um, your downloads do go up. Um, yeah, I know Brian's working on that some some way, shape, or form. But David, you are right. I think it's a, a difficult thing to do. It's it's really weird. They're very picky about your uh, p- the picture that you have for your podcast. It has to be the the requirements on it. I mean, I had to get somebody. I, I finally just had to get somebody to do mine for me that had done a podcast before. I could not get the huh. the picture right. It was it was frustrating. It, it, Ian, you had that same problem too, didn't you? Yeah, that was it, it. Was an odd thing that that's like the the, the aspect that they're the biggest sticklers about, you know. Yeah. Anyway, it's hard to get that done, but uh, hopefully you guys will get that done soon. But yeah, y'all have y'all, I man, y'all have churned out content at a record pace. <laughs> well, Brian is he he loves what he does, and he has a lot of people just lined up to do it. So you know, and I think what helps us out a little bit is because we're not focused on one specific band or something. We really have a a pretty good breadth of, of people and, and things to choose from. So, you know, last time we had Andy Aldord on, who's, who's a journalist, who's written about CB Ray Vaughan in a book. He, you know, he's played in bands. Um, we've talked to musicians and, and things. So it gives, you know, I think we have a nonstop slew of guests that can come on. And at this point too, we're getting a lot of um, promoters who, are, who represent bands, kind of up and coming bands that really reach out to us to get them on the show uh, so they can get their voices heard and their music out there a little bit. You know, even if it's 900 people or whatever we have following us, it's 900 other people that haven't heard them before. So, you know, that, that helps a little bit. So we're just, we're beating people down at the door at this moment. Well, yeah, y'all are, y'all are, every time I look up, like I've got a new, a new, <laughs> a new, uh, a new episode out. It, um, it's pretty, actually pretty impressive. I know um, when I do these digital kill ones, um, it's just, I don't know, I don't, it goes a lot, a lot goes into a lot of this. Um, and then Ian is the master editor over there. He's the uh, Mr. Miyagi, if you will, of of editing. He uh, he knows all the tricks. He knows all the tricks. <laughs> I know, but uh, uh, Mr. Brian there is uh, he's making me feel bad about myself. He's turning out content like uh, crazy. I'm, uh, like, I, I, I got to get off uh, get off my butt here and uh, pick a pace. <laughs> He, uh, like, yeah, he, it's a lot of work because you guys know you have to do some research and have somewhat level preparation or if it's a band or something you haven't heard before, you got to spend some time listening to it too. So, you know, it's it's a lot of work, but it's worth it because I found a lot of really great uh, bands and artists and things that I would not have n- normally been exposed to. And also the sad part is a lot of the public wouldn't be exposed to. There is a lot of really good original rock music coming out right now that because there's no radio airplay, there's no MTV, there's not a great way for this, for their music to get out. Obviously live concerts are shut down too. So there really aren't platforms for you guys, us, anybody listening to this right now to really find out about. Yeah. Well, y'all are doing a good job of it. I mean, heck y'all talk about some bands that are from down here that I've never even heard of. <laughs> so, I mean, y'all, y'all are doing, uh, y'all are doing pretty good. Ian, what do you have coming up on uh, classic wax? Well, uh, hopefully, 2021 will see the show return to a uh, more regular schedule. Uh, there is the second 
uh, Van Halen episode I did. And then there's also a Stevie Wonder episode coming up. And uh, we've got some Grateful Dead and all kinds of things on the horizon, trying to line up a few other things. And uh, it should be fun. Well, since I don't want to do self-promotion, why don't you tell everybody what's about to happen on State of America? Oh, on the State of America podcast, we are pleased to be interviewing uh, none other than Mr. Uh, Mark Ford, uh, who is, for those who don't know, the the most famed and uh, revered guitarist that the Black Crows had in their lineup and uh, has done some great solo work and and sat in with some great other artists. And uh, it should be fun. Should be Heck fun. of a catch there, man. I'm so glad you were able to land him. I am so looking forward to that episode. Well, we're hoping uh, we're hoping it goes well. I think it will. I think it will. We've been working on our, our questions for a couple of days. Yeah. And then Ian's going to compile them all together. Uh, we don't want it to sound like the Chris Farley show. So. <laughs> <laughs> you remember when you were in the Black Rose? That was that awesome. Was awesome. <laughs> you, me- you remember that my morning song in Glastonbury? That was awesome. <laughs> All right, so uh, no, you guys will do great. You guys will do great. So what we're going to talk about today, though, is something that's uh, um, a big passion of mine: Alice in Chains. Uh, I think most people know that Dirt's the top five album of all time for me. And uh, it's really the album that got me into them. I'm really not that big of a fan of Facelift, like a lot of people are. But uh, Dirt is uh, one of my all-time favorite albums. And um, let's see, after they got through off the road with Dirt, they went into the studio. And um, as Sean Kenny, the drummer, said, you know, we were been playing all this loud, heavy music for a couple of years, and we just wanted to do something maybe it wasn't so loud. So they go in the studio and... Uh, kind of self-produced themselves probably with a little help from Toby Wright who did the engineering Uh, and Toby would go on to produce the tripod album and then um, he would do the unplugged album and he's actually been a guest on here before and and, and if people have listened and and didn't don't remember the unplugged album by a lot of people from audiophiles is considered one of the most perfectly recorded live albums of all time it is not mastered that is the actual recording. He recorded it and sent it off to be mastering. And the guy that was going to do the mastering called him back and said, it's it's perfect. There's nothing I can do to make it sound better. And so, I mean, it's pretty impressive uh, what he did. But so he he was an engineer and he's not technically a producer on this, but I would think he probably helped him out. But it's self-produced. But yeah, so an EP comes out in 94. It's one of those things I can remember exactly where I was. I was I was in a car with my mother, and we were in a Wendy's drive-through when I heard "No Excuses" the first time, uh, and was like, "Got to go get that." Um, but yeah, so Jar Flies. I mean, I almost considered. I know it's technically an EP, but it's like six or seven songs. I almost considered an album. Ian, let's start with you first. Um, kind of where were we? Where were you with Alice in Chains when Jar Flies came out? Jar Flies came out at a time I was. Um like 13 years old. Uh, so I was in junior high school. I, it had a big impact on me. Um, I, 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 I distinctly remember hearing I stay away, uh, you know, on the radio, which I believe it was the first single, if I'm not mistaken, but, uh, I, I loved this album. I, I couldn't, I couldn't get enough of it. It, it was just, and to me it was like an album, you know, uh, it, it came out in the, in the, the era when, uh, you know, they, it was 80 minutes on a, on a CD. So, you know, artists would typically try to fill the entire 80 minutes. So you got your money's worth, but a lot of times that resulted in a lot of filler, 
you know, and this is seven tracks and, and all of them are, are excellent. Uh, I've always loved this record. What about you, Jason? I'll be honest with you guys. I really ignored Alice in Chains for the most part up until the Unplugged album. And that's what really got me into them. So I like Man in the Box. Loved the song Wood off the single soundtrack. Had the single soundtrack. Dug all that. Um, when this came out and something in the next album we're going to talk about a little bit too, I sort of just, you know, ignored it. If it came on the radio, I stay away. No excuses, whatever. Thought they were good. Thought they were fine. The videos were constantly on MTV. And I thought, this is, you know, whatever. Um, when the Unplugged album came out, I was like, holy shit, this is amazing. I can't believe a heavy metal slash grunge band can sound like all this stuff. So I'm going to go back and get into their music. And Jar of Flies was one of those albums you could find for cheap at a UCD store. They had a plethora of those. And I ended up getting that and just like amazing. It's like it's a masterpiece. It's my, this is my if you exclude the Unplugged album, this is my favorite thing that Allison Change has ever done. So you didn't, you weren't like a, a fan of Dirt when it came out. I was not a fan of Dirt when it came out. I liked, you know, I liked a lot of the songs that were on there. Um, Rooster, um, that's on Dirt, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. See, that song was overplayed to me. It's one of those songs where the category of song by a really good artist that I don't care to ever hear ever again. So like Inner Sandman by Metallica, Rambling Man by the Allman Brothers. So. <laughs> And that song was all over everything. And that's sort of just, you know, now, David, to your to your pleasure here, I love Dirt. I've gone back and listened to it. Kind of like when I rediscovered them in 96 off the Unplugged album. A, a brand new appreciation. That's like a, he- and that's heavy metal. It's not grunge. Heavy metal masterpiece album. Well, you know, they, they did Dirt. And then they released those two songs on um, the Last Action Hero soundtrack, What the Hell Have I, yep. and A Little Bitter. What the Hell Have mm-hmm. I is actually the song that got me into Alice in Chains. Um, I think it's one of their, I think it's one of their most unique. It's it's one of my favorite songs of theirs. But yeah, so they had all this momentum. And <clears throat> not only did they have the momentum, they were the band was probably playing the best it had ever played. Because at that point, Mike Starr had left. And you had Mike Inez, mm-hmm. who came in fresh off of Ozzy Osbourne. And uh, he really added a, a, you know, a lot to them. So they were, they were, you know, clicking on all cylinders, kind of like uh, the Crows were when they came off the uh, their first tour and they go into the studio to do Southern Harmony. Um, but it' very interesting for them to put that out because you had Sap, which we're going to talk about. So you have Facelift, which is you know pretty heavy album. Then you have mm-hmm. this acoustic Sap, and then you have Dirt, which is just its own monster. And it's just very, very, very. It's one of the darkest records of all time, I think. Uh, and the music on it's very heavy. And then they come out with this, you know. Um, this EP and it sold 4 million copies. I didn't realize it had sold that many. I mean, that's huge. So really art from an artistic and commercial standpoint, it was a big risk. Don't you guys think? Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. The funny thing is for me, and I I don't know how common this is for other people. I for some reason, I guess maybe because I was, I was young enough or, or whatever, but, uh, I, I didn't know of Alice in Chains. It, I'd like, Sap and Jar of Flies are the first things I heard by them. So I, I thought they were like a primarily acoustic act. <laughs> yeah. Which is, you know, it's <laughs> clearly not true. Uh, but uh, so to me, the, this these sounds that I, you hear on, on these two EPs, this was like the band to me. 
So I had to go back and get into the heavier stuff, which I'm sure is abnormal, but I do everything abnormal. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like, so this album, I think they had I Stay Away and um, were, like, actually tracks. I Stay Away was a top, like, number one single on the rock album charts, too. So, you know, it had commercial success. It had critic success. You know, there's a whole list of of Guitar World Magazine had this in the top 10, you know, Rolling Stones had it, Loudwire. Like, there's a lot of places that really had thrown this either on the yearly top 10 or decade top 10 on that, too. So, man, it, it is a, just a super great album. And, David, your question about risk, yeah, it's a risk. You build a, fa- a fan base with a particular sound, right? This heavy, heavy metal. I'm not going to call House and Change grunge, and we can talk about that later if you guys want to. They're a, they're a heavy metal band. You go in, you start doing this acoustic, uh, melodic, um, vocal harmony type of stuff. It's almost like, I call this stuff, it's almost like the equivalent of like 70s Neil Young, but done in the 90s grunge era, right? That is a risk of turning off a lot of your audiences to do that kind of 180 on your sound, but it is beautiful, it's glorious, it works for them, and to their credit, it shows how talented they are to construct songs like this in the way they did and be successful doing it. And I don't think they really did a lot of pre-production on this. I think they just got in the studio. And Cantrell, I read, said that they, when they came off the Dirt tour, they were all had all been evicted because they hadn't paid their rent anywhere, and they just moved in the studio for you know a couple of weeks. And to me, this really, this album above all of them shows how great of musicians they are. Um, Absolutely. There, there's there. It literally showcases everybody in the band. Sean Kenny's drumming. He is one of the most underrated drummers of all time. And yes. if you don't think that, go listen to Jerry Cantrell on some of his solo shows when Sean Kenny was not the drummer on them. Listen to the guy play No Excuses. You just, you know, there's nobody else can mimic that. And, you know, you had Mike Inez. He contributed a lot. We'll get to that. He contributed a lot to this album. Um, and Lane Staley, the great chameleon, like his voice, he had so many different voices. And uh, particularly on like Rotten Apple, he just, it's a, it's a, a, he was singing in a range we never heard before. Um, And so I just think this album really showcases everything that was great about the band and probably like one of the most surprising purchases I've ever made because, you know, I heard no excuses on the radio and I'm like, well, maybe they just put out a mellow one song, you know, and then you go and get it and, you know, you're like, wow. So what we'll do is, like we always do, we'll just kind of run through some of these songs. And, and both of you guys are musicians. And so... Um, hold on now. Hold on. Don't give us too much credit. Or don't give me too much credit. I'm not going to speak for Ian. You, you, yeah. No, you, I don't deserve that credit either. You, ha- you, have, you have recorded music, Jason. Yes, I have. So that's better than me. <coughs> and I know Ian can play guitar pretty well, from what I've been told. <laughs> Yeah, that was me telling you that. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so the first track that we hear on um, this EP is Rotten, the aforementioned Rotten Apple, which starts with just a killer bass groove. And it just goes, and and, I mean, this song is seven minutes long. It takes a while to to, to build in. You've got, like I said, uh, the cool bass playing of Mike Inez. You've got Lane Staley singing in this kind of really different uh different register and you have uh jerry cantrell playing the talk box and uh done doing some cool stuff over that 
really it's almost like a psychedelic song i uh this is about the time that i went to college a couple of months after this came out and i can tell you uh amongst other people that i know there was a lot of bong hits going on um you know listening to listening to this uh ep in particular rotten apple in our fraternity house there's a guy used to blast it at like 10 all hours of the day but Anyway, Rotten Apple, it's a great way to start the uh, start the album off. So let's start with you, Jason. What are your thoughts on it? So I'm going to take what you said about a great way to start the album off and say that's an interesting way to start the album off because normally your first album on the track is high energy. It's something to get people going. This is a really a darker – it's a dark song. It's a long song. It's dark. It definitely is a little bit more of a mature sound for them. I think particularly the subject matter, too, I think it's – Lane wrote this song. I, no, actually, Jerry Cachell wrote this song. So, it, you know, are they being introspective about them being bad people on this? It's just a it's a good song. I like it. it to your point, it's a little psychedelic. It's an interesting choice for a number one song to introduce somebody to the album. Like, I Stay Away or something, you know, one of those radio hits seem to be a, a better choice to do it. So it's weird. It's almost like, so I called this album... A, set, a Neil Young album done in the 90s. That's This song is almost like a Doors album or Doors song done in the 90s, like really psychedelic and, and odd. Ian, what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, I've always I always thought this was a, a, a great opening to the album until I saw Unplugged a couple of years later and they opened with, with the, the second track on this album. And then that, that to me actually made me reassess. Maybe that should have been the opening track. But he, I mean, either way. And that talk box, I mean, you're absolutely right. That's not that's not Peter Frampton's talk box. Here. <laughs> yeah, that's something a little a little different. And uh, you know, uh, it's, it sounds great. Mike Mike Inez always knows how to do a, a bass intro. I mean, you know, obviously wrote the the main line to Ozzy's "No More Tears," and you know, he he knows how to write very distinctive lines that kind of, can kind of stand on their own. It's very very unique to find a bass player that doesn't just add to the music he's almost creating the the identifiable part identifiable part of the song yeah so like from a from like a guitar standpoint kind of you guys explain what all because there's a lot going on to this there's there's obviously some overdubs and stuff right yeah they, they tracked a couple of different things on it where you have some of the i, I think it's a little bit of the electric lead parts on this one versus the acoustic kind of the driving um the rhythm pieces I mean, Ian, I mean, what did you pick up on it? Yeah, definitely a lot of layers to this one. But, uh, and, and, you know, and throughout, it, it, it shows here, but throughout the entire album, too, there's, you don't realize how complex what Jerry Cantrell is playing, even on the, the rhythm parts, like the, the chords he uses and the structure of them. It's a lot of minors. Yeah, yeah, a lot of minors, a lot of sevenths, nines, like some jazz stuff. Like it's, it's really, it sounds simple. You're 100% right. That's a good perspective from a musician. It sounds simple, but it's actually not. From the chords to the rhythms, you know, the lead stuff, the notes, you know, st- relatively standard stuff. It sounds good how he arranges it, but the rhythm and the chords are really complex, darker, jazzier. Just, yeah, that's a, that's a good call out. Well, one of the things I think that's interesting about him is the way, first of all, I think he's the modern day tony iomi riff master almost um sure but one of the things i think is interesting my little knowledge of guitar that i have he is almost in a way able to use a minor chord like a major chord at times 
um, you know, a, a lot of times minor chords are kind of like transitions in a progression, mm-hmm. aren't they? And, and he uses them so many. Sometimes the major chord, you know, is is like the the transition. I just think he is. He's one of my favorite guitarists of all time. I think he's up there with like Michael Anthony as possibly the best, you know, harmony singer in all of music. And not and he can sing solo just as just as good. There is no replicating him and Lane Staley together. That's just, I mean, William Duvall is great. I love those albums. I think he does a very, very good job. But um, one of the things I was asking about the guitars is there's a few performances of this live, not a lot. And obviously, Cantrell is the guitar player. And mm-hmm. live, it really is missing a lot. You realize, mm-hmm. you know, how many, you know, what all's going on on the album as far as from an overdub standpoint. My take on the meaning of the album is basically, I think it's about, we got a whole lot too fast, and it ruined us, and kind of, you know, I mean, like, see, it's like, what I see is unreal, I've written my own part, even the apple's so young, I'm crawling back to start. Kind of always thought it's like, hey, we thought we wanted this, we got it, now it's not what we thought we wanted, we want to go back to a little more innocent life. What what is y'all's take on it? Yeah, I would... uh... I would say that's that's a pretty uh, spot on assessment of that. I mean, it kind of it, it's tough for me because I didn't I didn't become a, a lyric kind of guy until a little more recently because uh, you know being a young man that was uh, right yeah obsessed sure. with guitars I was always listening to the guitars so you know it's it's interesting when you go back and and listen to the lyrics how how much is in there I always feel like universally Jerry Cantrell writes a lot of his lyrics almost like from Lane Staley's perspective, it's almost like he's writing for you know for for his experiences, not Jerry Cantrell's own experiences. Um, which I feel very much so about a song that comes up later on the album. Yeah, so that that's the interesting part about Cantrell and like trying to really pick up on maybe um, Lane Staley stuff. So a couple things, um, man. So if you know a lot about Jerry Cantrell, he had a pretty rough childhood too from having a military dad family split brother go across the country so you know is he writing from lane staley's point or is he writing from his own point of view on some of this stuff too this is a dark album it's sad it's dark it is not like it maybe except for the last song but it is not a ray of sunshine so is it lane's perspective is it jerry's perspective is it the band's perspective you know i kind of took away this song is it like are they talking about are they bad people or have they become bad people are they the proverbial rotten apple you know i like your perspectives that you had was it the band too much too soon i'm um, sure it could be that too but i almost looked at it like man are you know have we become bad people or are we bad people yeah i think i think so many people especially like with Kentrell's solo career every lyric they try to think is like you know um talking about lane and i think he had said like on that um black gives way to blue album that was kind of when his lane writing ended like that was his farewell to lane uh, even like his solo albums which that, that degradation trip volume one and two is just fantastic and it, it's even darker than dirt if you can think about that but yeah i think a lot of people always want to go go to him it's kind of like the crows like if there's some like obscure black crows lyrics go, oh they're talking about drugs um <laughs> and i feel like you know he he kind of gets pigeonholed in that but i agree with you he very well could be talking about himself um, or, you know, they could be talking, you know, about them collectively as a band, but 
that leads into probably the song that most people have the biggest emotional connection to uh, on the album, Nutshell. And Ian, you talked earlier about how this is how they opened up um, the Unplugged. And I agree with you. It was amazing. You just have Contrail come out and start strumming. Then you have Mike Inez come out. Then you have Sean Kenny come out. And then finally, Lane Staley, bless his heart, was just in terrible shape. I mean, looked horrible. <laughs> Um, coming out there, but he he did he did deliver a you know a pretty impressive performance. So Ian, um, I'm you've alluded to this song already before. I'll let you lead it off. Uh, Nutshell, song number two. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm, in that in the unplugged setting, it kind of lent to a good intro because each instrument kind of comes in. They're not, they don't all start at the same time, so it allowed for that start with one guy and then they all walk out. But I I just think it's a very powerful song, and that's why. It works well, uh, you know, in the in the number one spot. Um, but it, it, honestly, it would be hard to to determine if it could, if you could swap this and Rotten Apple and have it still have the same effect. Rotten Apple and Apple is a, a definitely an effective opener. I just always like Nutshell. I think that the music uh, is very good. It's very haunting in a way because there's a lot of. Whereas Alice in Chains may be on their more electric stuff, the the spaces are often quite filled with sound this is one of one of the songs of theirs that has some open space to it and i always kind of like that it it makes it that much more haunting in a way and you know in the best way possible jason what are your thoughts on it yeah so i'm gonna line with ian on a lot of the stuff too this is absolutely one of my favorite um allison chain songs of all time i think it's like on the on the unplugged album the way that the instruments come in and build and work together it's a little bit like uh, Fake Plastic Trees by Radiohead. If you listen to that song, too, it starts out and everybody kind of builds builds together to get this emotional crescendo. Crescendo? Emotional crescendo. <laughs> um, simple chords. So we like talking on the last song, and Dave, you talked about like the guitar work and musicianship. It is simple chords. This starts out with the minor chord, E minor 7, which is a little bit more of a jazzier chord. But a lot of people in the 90s were using this chord shape, including Oasis, who we've spoken about in an earlier episode. It is a beautiful, sad song. Minor evokes the emotion. It's got a little bit of complex uh, rhythm to it with some hammer on, hammer offs to that, a little bit of flavor to it. And going back to Contrell's work, and we kind of talk, and one, one of the things that makes him a really good guitar player is when you listen to the solo and what he did with the solo is he's not doing anything, anybody different. He's using a, you know, a minor, pentonic minor solo scale on this one. But it's the notes he's playing. He's not trying to do a bunch of notes. He's not trying to do anything crazy to show off his skill. He is using those notes to evoke uh, emotion within the song and kind of drive the song, too. And, like, you know, a lot of guitar players want to go out and play a bunch of shit and show how technically talented they are. This guy plays within the song structure, uses the notes accordingly, um, and it just builds it together, too. I mean, he's got a little bit of a metal shredding like you can see his metal shredding roots a little bit in the solo but it, it's perfect man this is this is a gorgeously sad song um i think it's about drug addiction i don't know i mean david again what do you think well i've read where mike Inez said this is the song of all the alice and chain songs that makes him think of lane the most um and he said that basically lane was being he said this song is him quote unquote in a nutshell it's everything that Lane was going through. And I think one of the, the, the fascinating things about Lane Staley is his music was so dark. And I think a lot of it was about him. 
But if you go and watch videos and interviews, he seemed like a very lighthearted, you know, easygoing guy. And Toby Wright told me when, when we had him on, he said, these guys have like an amazing sense of humor. Because uh, I was just kind of like, you know, is it like all dark and everything? And the, you know, he's like, they have a lot of fun. And I, I think you'll, you know, the final song on this is kind of a, you know, a little fun. And they, mm-hmm. they, you know, they have a, a hidden song on Sap at the end of Sap that's just kind of a, you know, just kind of a mess. <laughs> we'll get to that. Yeah, we'll get to that. But I mean, like if you, and even like if you watch them in concert, like in between songs, Lane Staley's joking around and so is Contrell. And it's just really kind of this weird dichotomy with him. Um, and, you know, he had that just impressive vocal range, especially when he got into the area where most people would be screaming. His is like a controlled scream, like on Man in the Box and, and Wood and stuff like that. But then he has just this, the vocals on this could not be more restrained. And it's just haunting that that he could do this and then mix that in with everything that was going on. Um, th- this is just like one of the most brutally honest, sad songs you're ever going to hear. So let me pick up on what you yeah. talked about, like on lighthearted emotion. If you know a lot of comedians or comedic actors to stand up people, they're people who on the outside are very funny and jovial, but on the inside, they're usually some of the people who are the most messed up people in the world. And they even admit that too. Right. right. So I think what you said is really interesting. I didn't think about that to be said. It. So he's jovial and fun on the outside, but really dark on the inside where his, music comes out and that parallels right with a lot of these comedians, what they say. Yeah. And I mean, you know, they originally were basically a hair metal band, Yeah, uh, but, but you know, before they, you know, put out facelift and, and facelift is like, I think it's this weird album to try to categorize. Like it, it's got some elements of some of the, that. And then it's got some elements of grunge. I've always thought it was, you know, it's hard to pigeonhole that album, but Ian kind of, what are your thoughts on, you said you're not, for the most part, not really a lyric guy, but this is one the lyrics are pretty powerful. They are. And I, I remember reading uh, somewhere too that uh, I think it was Mike Ina said that this is the song that makes him think of Lane the most and uh, and uh, that he they felt that this was the one that was most direct in terms of what Lane was feeling. Like he was always very autobiographical and, and honest in his lyrics, but they thought that this one was kind of, you know, it really hit the mark. And I, I can definitely see that. And especially the way he sings it, like those little high, you know, uh, like those oohs that he does just, you know, on, those are very, and it's just all very emotional in such a weird way. Cause it's not, he's not actually saying anything though in, during those parts, but it, 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 it always affected me. I always felt something from that. Like I, I felt this guy's pain in a way. Yeah. Yeah, it's a sad song, but it doesn't necessarily make me feel sad. I love to listen to it. It makes me feel good, even though it's a sad, dark as hell song. Right. What I thought that makes the, sense. It, it's a song that a lot of people gravitate to that aren't necessarily Alice in Chains fans. Like I like let's say you're you were a female in the nineties and you know I you, was you didn't necessarily <laughs> <laughs> That's a podcast for another day. <laughs> you, uh, you you know you didn't you didn't necessarily um necessarily listen to Alice in Change. This is one that would probably get you to go to the, a concert. And yeah. if you see a lot of people talk about like songs that impacted their childhood from then their adolescent years, Nutshell's up there pretty big. Uh it's covered a lot by a lot of people. Um yep. Yeah, I I think it's just great. And I think what they did on Unplugged was just 
I don't know. It was just oh, that. it is so good on Unplugged. It is amazing in that format. Yeah, just I, I think that I think ultimately what can be said about Lane Lane Stanley's lyrics is because I mean, um, you guys are a couple of years older than me, so I was like I said. Thanks I was, for pointing that out. Ian. I'm just saying. I was in, I was still very impressionable at the time this came out because I was about thirteen. You know that's that's when you're going through the, you know. I was in college. <laughs> so, um, you, you it, it, he sings kind of things that a, a, a person of that age can identify with in a lot of ways because it's like that angst that you feel mm-hmm. at thirteen, fourteen, and that, I guess that's why I latched onto these things at the time. And, and they, but they I carried them with me and then as you become older you you start to see much more value in it but it it kind of speaks to a lot of different age groups and i think that's why it became so timeless and so universally liked yes it speaks to me now at 45 yeah yeah was this actually released as a single i meant to look that up i don't up. think so yeah i don't think, I think so it was, either. i stay away and no excuses is what i have on my notes and i, I and could I, be wrong i think i mean unplugged is what put this one into the Yes. The zeitgeist, if you will, um, of that time. All right. So the next song, um, as Jason just said, was a single, I Stay Away. All right. So I'm going to need some help with this. I think this is one of the more uniquely written songs. It starts with this just really cool playing by Cantrell, and it's it's just got this very melodic chord structure. We're going to have some strings in on it. Mm-hmm. You have the harmonizing of Lane and um, um, uh, Jerry. And it's really kind of weird. You, The first verse, I mean, the, the, the first verse is has two stanzas. The second verse just has one quick stanza. And they go into this, it's this really kind of cool and melodic uh, beginning and, and, and during the verses. And then it goes into this just kind of funky, different beat, tempo, um, um, chorus, and then Jerry Cantrell's not like he's not one known for sh- uh, like you said for shredding a lot. He shreds on this shreds. solo. This is one of his best solos. And yes. before we get to anything specific, this solo reminds me like if Rich Robinson would have been in Alice in Change. This sounds like a solo Rich Robinson <laughs> would have done. Rich's alternative rock solo. <laughs> yeah, but but like the the way the way the phrasing and everything is on it. But uh, this had a you know a big uh, video on MTV with like the claymation and everything. Oh, yeah, all over. The meaning of this song has somewhat eluded me at times. So, uh, Jason, let's start with you. Your thoughts on the song and maybe kind of what the the meaning behind it. Yeah. So good questions. Um, one, I kind of like th- this song is the most Alice in Chains, Alice in Chains song on the album, I would say, you know, it's, it, I, I would understand. I think this was the lead, the lead single off of that. It makes sense. Cause if you're an Alice in Chains fan, you're going to listen to it. it. sounds like Alice in Chains all over the radio, all over MTV. You couldn't get away from the song. Um, the strings, like I'm talking about the song itself before I get into the meaning of it. Uh, the strings are great. Like when it kind of goes in the strings and the chorus, I think that's a really cool thing to do and adds a lot to it and you weren't seeing a ton of that stuff being done at the time in the 90s when this this thing came out and it really adds to a little bit probably more of that radio or mtv friendly feel to it uh 
right on about the solo, like um, Contrell treads a little bit um, on there. It's not really about what he's playing, it's how he's playing it. The phrasing, the notes, he's not trying to do a million notes a minute like an Ingve Momsing. This really goes to how good of a songwriter and artist he is because he knows he can get what he needs out of that song by doing what he's doing. You know, it's it's got a blue, it's even though it's a little shredding, it's got a little bit of that bluesy feel to it too. So it's it's really cool and you can, you know, you listen to Kentrell's solo work and some other stuff like that. You can kind of hear how he was, a, you know, a, uh, influenced by the blues. But what does this song mean? I'm not sure, man. Like, if I take the lyrics, it's like, I stay away. Am I staying away from people or things that bring me down? I'm going to guess here. I don't know what this song means, and I'll be honest. Ian? I agree. To me, uh, lyrically, this song was always kind of abstract to me. I never really could pin the meaning on it i just always liked it i think yeah. it's more the, the phrasing of the lyrics and yeah definitely i mean this also was a song the the first time that i was ever enlightened to the to how powerful strings can be in a rock type setting and used really... in the right way too they're not beating you over the head with it they're using it to approve the song yeah no absolutely and it's uh it's it's great the whole the whole song's great and this is actually um one of the few times I, I was taking guitar lessons around this, the time that this was out. So I brought this in thinking this would be <laughs> easy to do. simple. To, I mean, at least the, the rhythm parts, but that's where that comes in. What I mentioned before, how the chord structure is, is very complex, but there's also, and this resulted in me the first of many times throwing a guitar uh, <laughs> in frustration, but uh, behind the part where he says, you know, why you act crazy, those lyrics, Jerry Cantrell is doing this descending run on his guitar that is absolutely impossible. I never learned it. Like I said, I threw a guitar and that was it. And I, you know, How do you use the three-finger spread technique, Ian? Uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, well, it's, it's, it's fantastic, but I could never get it. In that part, too, though, Staley's vocals are the most Allison Chains vocals at that point, too. So if you listen to Man in the Box, the stuff off the Dirt record, that's he's got that growly dark right. sound that's what you recognize that Allison Chain's sound is right there yeah You're always right on that my, my whole take on the lyrics is is that he's singing from the point of view somebody that enjoys feeding off other people's fears and insecurities because uh, it's got like uh, uh, why you act crazy not an act maybe so close a lady shifty eyes lady yeah the tears that soak a callous heart and he's like why you act frightened i am enlightened your weakness builds me so someday you'll see and um yeah i've always thought i've always kind of thought i mean that i may be completely wrong but the ending of it man lane this is classic lane staley at the Ely when he, i mean classic lane staley at the end when he does the i stay away part over and over again and just goes to that register that gives you chill bumps yeah, I mean, there's no better way to say it than that, really. He hits that Allison Chains sound, that familiarity again. Right. You know, he he crushes that hook on that part of which the solo, you know, is the solo line. It's it's great, dude. Dude's got, everybody in that band has chops. And going back to what I said earlier, is I realized how good of a band these guys are, musicians they are, by listening to that Unplugged album. We can hear all those pieces. The fact they can do those vocal melodies. And harm harmonies together, I like. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, this is, I don't really have anything other to say, you know, build on other than what you said, David. All right, so this leads us to the uh, the biggest, the most famous song from it, um, song that still regularly 
is in Allison Chain's set list that uh, man, you you cannot get, explain how big this song was, and it's still played on classic rock radio all the time. I'll hold off on my thoughts on it. Ian, uh, no excuses. I always thought that uh, Sean Kenny was a uh, a master on this. His drums on this. I actually read something, and I don't. It was a while ago, so I don't remember. Uh, I believe it was Jerry Cantrell saying it, but I don't remember where I read it, and I couldn't find it again to reference it. But I remember he was such a perfectionist, especially with this track, that he actually threw away a drum set because he couldn't get this particular song and got another one in because he was so... But, I mean, it's it's such a wonderful drum line. I always took the lyrics on this to kind of be a uh, about um, Lane and Jerry you know, maybe or something you know, along those lines or because it sounds kind of like a uh, a relationship type thing. But uh, I, I always thought this song was great. It was huge. Like you said, David, uh, unbelievable. And you still hear this all over the place. This is one of those things you point to as an example of the best stuff from the, the grunge period, you know. Jason? Yeah, so a couple things on this one. Super radio friendly and for a good reason. Uh, that chorus hook is fantastic, man. It, it catches you. It, it's it gets you humming. Um, the drumming on this. So let's focus on the drumming. Build on what Ian said. I'll call this John Bonham esque for a reason. Not for the power of that Bonham was known for, but for that funky drum pa- drum pattern and rhythm that he does. That is not an easy thing to do, um, and it is. It's really, really good. So if you focus in on that, that is not something a lot of people can kind of pull off on that song. Um, man, good hook. I think it's great on the Unplugged album. Uh, Cantrell's chorus on that, or of course, Cantrell's solo on that is really good as well, too. Kind of playing within himself. It's fantastic. I like that you can hear the bass line quite a bit on that, that the bass line drives a little bit, especially on the quieter parts. Um, just just hook, good hook, good radio-friendly, like, great example of how good all the musicians are in that band and how they work together so what i was reading was toby wright was against that drum intro and really Sean kenny playing it the way he did and they uh i think toby wright brought in some like different percussion instruments or whatever and sean kenny didn't want to use them kind of stuck to himself and said you know this is this is what we're going to go with and it's one of the, i mean when i think of like famous drum intros to songs i mean this is this is up you know there. right off the beat yeah like the first drum beat or two you can tell what we're going into and again john bonham asked for that there is a, a specific sound that, or the song or the person that you know you can tell just like that yeah i've always kind of thought that the the song is kind of about him and Kentrell's relationship like you said in that they both have things that bring each other down and it's just, you know, there's no excuses for it, but it's who we are. But then they have these things that pick them up and they have this shared experience. And so that's kind of always been my take on it. Um, I know it's like most musicians will say, you know, once we write the song, it's up to you to, you know, make it what you want. That's kind of what I've always thought. You know, I we are who we are. Uh, we bring each other down. Yeah. And, uh, you know, not going to make any excuses about it. Yeah. Um, that leads to um, a song that I think really adds to this album, and uh, that is Whale and Wasp. Now, this song has so many layers to it. <laughs> I mean, I, I, you know, like I said, I'm not a musician, but I mean, 
th- this one, if you listen to this one all the way through, it ends totally different than what it starts off as. Um, I just think it's a great example of, of what Jerry Cantrell can do on a guitar. So, Ian, I'm going to let you g- go with this one first. This, to me, and I, I don't mean this in a negative way because I like this. This, to me, is what heroin sounds like to me. <laughs> like, that's, like that. it has that, I would expect this to be a piece that would be used as the, the backdrop for, like, a scene in a film that somebody was. I have that in my notes. This would be great on a soundtrack. Yeah, like it's, and that would be the, what was taking place in that scene, in my opinion, and and I I don't mean that negative or anything. I think it's I think it's fantastic in that uh, in that capacity, and I really it really does, like David said, showcase a lot of Jerry Cantrell's versatility as a guitar player. Yes, so I, I assume you're going to throw it to me next, David. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm just going to butt in regardless. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so. To Ian's point, it sounds like this would be a good emotionally evocative scene in a mu- music movie soundtrack for something that's kind of dark. Maybe it's a drug movie. For me, particularly the beginning of it, it makes me think of like a seafaring adventure, and it makes me think of Moby Dick. You know, and it has whale in the song title, but it like it feels like a seafaring adventure at the beginning of, it and sort of transitions to something different. And I'm like, uh, Contrell's guitar pieces, particularly towards the end, trying to sound more like a whale or a dolphin. And this is my 90s alternative rock joke. I'm going to throw it in here. I even wrote this down. Sounds like a dolphin's cry. Can you hear it? Yeah, can you hear it? The dolphin's cry. (laughs) By live. That's what I was about to say. (laughs) But anyways, it's really cool. It would be more, I think, better suited as a movie soundtrack. It doesn't necessarily fit with the sound of this album, for sure. I mean, thematically, the darkness, yeah, but the sound of the album, no. And I don't know where the Wasp comes into the play. David, where does the Wasp come in on the No idea. I think, that, I think they just probably thought it was a cool title. <laughs> you know, like... Jason, I will tell you that, that what you just mentioned, that is ex- precisely where I fell off with the band live. Yeah, yeah, that was uh, um, Secrets from Audio, I think the name of the album was. No, it was the one after. Well, I never oh, I, um, I, I, yeah, that was terrible. I never could pronounce the lead singer's last name. No. Um, can anybody? Ed Kowalczyk or whatever his name is. Ed Kowalczyk? And, it, and the, the name of the band makes it very hard to search for uh, in any Google search because, you know. Hey, but they, <laughs> but they they put out the best lyric of all time, the placenta fell to the floor. Uh, yeah, his lyrics are always a bit... Uh, I mean, what were they smoking when he's like, I'm going to... Th- th- or it's almost something like... Oh, himself. I bet you can't put placenta in a song. And he's like, oh, why would you want to hold my beer? Yeah. <laughs> Which is a shame because lyrically he kind of falls apart. But that guy's a great singer. He's a great singer. They had some good radio friendly songs and stuff, but the dude is really full of himself. He's like a mystic shaman or shaman. <laughs> Either way you say it, he's not. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That leads. And I us... apologize again for the joke. No, it's a good one. Um, that leads us to my favorite song on the album. Don't follow which has a very unique uh, song structure for them. Um, Starts off with uh, just this very tender playing and singing by Jerry Cantrell. I think it's probably Cantrell's most powerful vocals, and that's saying a lot because he's done so many good, has so many good vocal takes, but the kind of the tenderness and the emotion he displays on this, it's just, I think it's his best yet. Weird song structure, starts out just him. It gets into where it speeds up a little bit. We have a harmonica, and then Lane Staley comes in, and then um, uh, just really 
really, really powerful song. The lyrics to me are just top notch. Um, it's just really, really powerful song. It's always been my favorite song on the album when it came out. I really gravitated to this and I would get kind of mad because like, you know, when you're in high school or whatever and you're riding around with your friends or whatever and you put this in and I always wanted to go to Don't Follow and nobody else liked it. So I always kind of felt like the odd man out. Uh, you needed different you friends. Mean they, you mean they didn't follow? Right. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what's your take on it, Ian? Um, I'm with you. I mean, there's probably one of my top tracks on here. I kind of flip flop between this and, um, nutshell, but, uh, I always thought that this was kind of almost like written as a goodbye to Lane Staley years before it actually happened. Because I think, I think even in, in, in 93, 94, that the writing, they could see the writing on the wall. If he didn't, if he continued down the path he was on and the, the power of this song, I really came to me um uh, when lane stanley actually passed away which i believe was 2002 um on the uh opie and anthony radio show they opened the show with playing this as a tribute to him and i realized how emotionally powerful this song is lyrically and uh, musically uh such a fantastic song and just as rotten apple was a great opener this is a great closer i know it's technically not the last track on the album but you know um it, it really does close things out because the, the song after is kind of more a bit of fun, you know? Jason? So I'm with you guys. This is one of my favorite top two Alice in Chains songs of all time, along with Nutshell. I think this is a masterpiece. Um, Cantrell's voice and guitar playing are so good. They're so stripped down, but so good. Um, interesting, this is a in D major, so it's not even a minor song, even though it sounds sad. I know they tune the guitars down half step or so just to get that thing but it's actually not in a minor which is rare um not an easy pattern to do and like I, I i alluded to neil young earlier i think like this is like a neil young song right this sounds like something neil young could absolutely do or would have done it could probably cover the the hell out of it, it wouldn't be as good as control doing it um love the harmonica love a little bit of the tempo change once they get to the back side of the song a little bit more of the chorus i mean it's a masterpiece um this is a breakup song, for sure, whether it's breaking up away from the band or Lane Staley, or it just makes me think of breaking up with a girl in college and kind of going through that about the same time, too. But it's a masterpiece. It is awesome. Uh, Contrell is a – he's one of the top people coming out of that decade and top people in rock for a lot of years just by all this stuff. And, you know, I, it's hard to really talk a lot about it because I like the song. I have too much strong emotion to it. Well, I think you're completely right, Ian. You read the, you know, when Staley comes in, it goes, forgot my woman, lost my friends, things I've done, where I've been, sleep and sweat, the mirror's cold, see my face, it's growing old, scared to death, no reason why, do whatever to get me by, think about all the things I said, read the page, it's cold and dead. I mean, that's, that's, it's almost like Jerry Cantrell in the first verses is saying, I love you, I can't go down this road with you, you know, we've, we've you've gone too far you're flying too close to the sun and it's basically lane staley saying i've done what i've done and i'm about to face the consequences of it. that's kind of my always been my interpretation of it but yeah a harmonica on a allison chainsaw i mean come on it works and it works there we go it works it's so it act who's playing the harmonica do you guys know i don't let's see if i can let's see here i didn't see it when i looked it up but i didn't so, really 
it's it, credited to a gentleman by the name of David Atkinson. So I don't, I'm not familiar okay. with All right. Well, good That's job, David Atkinson. <laughs> I think this would have been a great way to finish this. Yeah. Kind of like descending on Amorica. But time will tell on Southern Harmony. Let's send them out on a mellow note. Um, yeah. You know, not necessarily a happy note, but a, a, a mellow note. Um, it, there's a performance where he played, where Kentrell plays this. Uh, I think, I can't remember if William Duvall's with him or not, but this one has not, it was never performed with Staley, which is kind of a shame. This this, this one should have been on Unplugged. It should have been on Unplugged. And I, like, I can't believe this. How is this one left off? This is an acoustic song. Right. right. Yeah, I would have, I would have left, you know, maybe... One or the there's a couple of songs on there I thought were odd choices, but we can talk about that at another time. Well, that leads us to uh, really for me, kind of the uh, the only real um, sour point on this album. Um, see, I'm forgetting the, the name of it. Swing on this. Swing on this. Yeah, just kind of a, a pl- I think more or less kind of a playful jazzy type song. I'm sure they were just kind of in the studio, I'm like, hey, let's do something kind of weird. I, I just wish they would have. I would have left it off because I think it killed the vibe. Yeah. So can I can I jump in on yeah. this one? Because I'm going to tell you, here's here's my perspective on this song. They were having fun, but if you remember the dark ages of the mid '90s and late '90s, swing music became pretty popular for a little bit with uh, Voot, Big Bad Voodoo Daddy, Cherry Poppin' Daddy, whatever all Squirrel Nut Zippers, yeah. everybody Daddy. You know, were they influenced? Because this has a big band swing feel, at least on the verse piece. And I, I put a note on here is I think this would done well with like the horns and like just go, just go freaking full bore big band on that. The, the strings are kind of nice. The chorus is is definitely back to the alternative rock or the grunge sound or whatever you want to call Alice in Chains. But like, I think they should have just fully embraced the swing and just, 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 just did it. I mean, it's it's uh, it's fun and everything, but yeah, I, I'm more along, uh, in line with with David. It kind of detracts from the 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 big finish that "Don't Follow" gives. I mean, it doesn't. It's a weird ruin, song. It doesn't ruin the 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 experience of this this EP for me, but it it it, it didn't really need to be there. Could have been a hidden track, like on Sap. Yeah, or even a B-side somewhere, you know. So you guys don't agree with me. They should have just fully embraced the big bat band sound and just did the hell out of it like a swing jazz song. I mean, I think it, it would have been, been interesting. I think it would have been interesting, <laughs> but I, I just think it kills, I don't know, it kind of takes away to me from some of the seriousness of the of the album. Yeah, and, it's a bipolar and, song. Yeah, and sonically it's just, you know, doesn't yeah. it doesn't fit in either. All right, so Jason, I know you said that this is your favorite Alice in Chains album. Ian, if you had to rank the AIC albums, um, where would this one fall? Number one. If if unless it's unplugged. Number unplugged is number one. If we count that, that's not a studio release. Unplugged is number one overall. Studio releases, this is number one for me. Ian? Uh as far as studio releases go, actually the uh the second record we're gonna talk to talk about today is oh. my is my top. So really? and this would be right behind it to be honest with you. Well, then why don't we just lead right into that? Wait a minute. What about you, David? You got to answer that question. Uh, it's number yeah. two. It's number Sneaky. two. It's number two behind Dirt. Return Dirt. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's and then Facelift is actually pretty far down there for me. Like I love that Black Gives Way to Blue album. I thought it was phenomenal. Um, I like some of the stuff on the Devil Put Dinosaurs here. About half of it's good. Half mm-hmm. of it. Uh, yeah. Rainier Fog. 
for whatever reason just hasn't to me to me the songs sound the same on it um i need to give it some more time because a lot of people had it on their you know best of the year list but yeah um dirt and this and, and like you said unplugged i mean those are classics those i don't really count the unplugged one since it is a live album um but i got it coming in on vinyl finally here this Fine. week um all right so this was not the first ep they did um they actually did one before facelift came out i found out with uh like we die young on it and an, an unreleased song called killing time but um so sap was a basically all acoustic ep that they did and uh, have some heavy hitters on this one ann wilson of heart chris cornell mark arm of uh mud honey uh, it came out after facelift and it wound up selling like five hundred thousand copies and when it was originally released it wasn't there weren't many copies printed up and um this one kind of took on folklore after after dirt came out and uh they eventually released it again i think after jar of flies maybe and then they released it with jar of flies um years years later so ian you said this is your kind of your your favorite thing they've done then why don't we let you kind of lead the build up to it and what was going on and kind of the recording around it Well, I mean, I don't know too much about the uh, the background of of the recording for this, to be honest with you. Um, so now I just look foolish. Okay. <laughs> all right. So then, then I'll then I'll, I'll fill us all in. Um, you brought him here to talk about the songs, not the history. Yeah. So what they were doing is they went in the studio to record uh, wood for singles, and uh, while they were there, decided, hey, let's let's knock out some songs while we're in here. Um, and I think Rooster was included on this, and I think the arrangement would have been different. And they, you know, they obviously held that off to uh, to Dirt. Um, and uh, according to Wikipedia, Sean Kenny had a dream about making an EP called Sap. So the band decided to quote unquote not mess with fate, and we'll go with it. Uh, it was recorded <laughs> in like five days, and it was very important to them to have uh, some of the, their Seattle friends there. And if you if you know anything about Alice in Chains, um they are beloved by the band heart. And like, if I've listened to like this interview with Nancy Wilson, like on Dean Del Rey, and they talked about, she, he brought up Jerry Cantrell and she goes, Oh, he's my little buddy. And, um, they've always talked about how, when they were up and coming hearts, obviously from Seattle, they just really embraced them, all those bands. And if you remember when heart got inducted to the rock and roll hall of fame, when they played Barracuda, uh, Mike McCready, uh, Chris Cornell and Cantrell all came out and played guitar with them. And so they've just always had this just kind of almost like big sister relationship with them. And, you know, when, when Cornell died, it really, really hit Ann Wilson hard. I mean, she did a cover of I Am The Highway that people need to go listen to. Um, you know, she was really just, they loved Lane. And, uh, you know, and she just speaks with them so reverence. And some of their stuff was actually recorded at, at Bad Animal Studios, which is where Hart, you know, recorded a lot of their stuff. So they wanted to make sure she was in on it. And, of course, I'm sure their relationship with Cornell went back a while. And then Mark Arm of Mud Honey, which it's kind of interesting. If you read a lot of books about the Seattle movement, they were not well liked by the other bands. They all thought they were sellout, that Alice in Chains was sellouts because, like, Alice and Chains literally would open for anybody. Like they opened for Poison, and you know they were just early on. They weren't respected. Now I think all that changed, but so it has a powerhouse lineup. I mean, 
you, you've put out an album with Ann Wilson and Chris Cornell singing on it and, and Lane Staley. I mean, you could argue there's never been three better vocalists at one time, you know, on an yeah. album. But yeah, so they go in and, and, and they, you know, they just kind of put these songs together and, and write them. And the opening one, Brother, is one of the more powerful songs Alice in Chains mm-hmm. ever done. It's it's literally about Jerry Cantrell's brother who, when they got a divorce, uh, moved out to California with, uh, I think, with his father. Or, mm-hmm. I, yeah, I think his father. And the song's about him missing him and them having this, con- you know, kind of complicated relationship. And if you haven't seen it, there's a version of Sammy Hagar, Nancy Wilson, and uh, Jerry Cantrell playing this on acoustic guitars. And it put, like, when they got done, Sammy Hagar, like, I think, like, holds out his arm. And it's like, I have goosebumps. That's one of the coolest <laughs> things I've ever done. So, brother, just a... Uh, a very very personal song for Jerry Cantrell. Uh, the lyrics on it are very strong, and this is the first song that he ever sang lead vocals on in Alice in Chains. And obviously, this he would have a much bigger you know vocal part in the future. So, Ian, it's your favorite Alice in Chains thing. So, why don't you tell us then how much you love Brother? I do love Brother. I love it for a lot of reasons. Um, the lyrics are very deeply personal as it turns out but they sound it um the guitars are really cool um and it's the first taste of uh ann wilson's contributions that you get on this where she sings background i think it's more towards the end of the track but uh really adds a lot to it i mean she's very no i, I don't want to say underrated because everybody knows she's a great singer but heart kind of got pigeonholed when they went a little bit more pop mainstream there for a while but there's she's great and and if you hear her now she sounds just as good as she did in you know now in the 70s you know it's, she's her vocal quality has not deteriorated but uh great tune and uh definitely a, a great way to start off the the ep yeah yeah real strong like the, great track I, I think it's interesting that this was the first time that Cantrell sang and kudos to lane staley for like relinquishing some vocal control to say dude you're great, man. I want this is your song. I want you to sing it. Um, this is about your experience. Great, a little acoustic lick, licks on this one. A little blues, kind of some blues licks in there a little bit. Um, Ann Wilson, man, her voices are so powerful and and very unique, and you know it's her, and she really adds a lot to that song. I mean, if you listen to that song with headphones or with a really good system like on vinyl or something, like you can really hear that listening to it on the radio or something else does not do it um, any justice, but man, this is a good song It is deeply personal. Uh, There is a series on YouTube sponsored by Gibson guitar called icons and Jerry Cantrell has done an episode. He gets specifically into that familiar relationship with his brother, his dad, his mom, check it out. You'll understand where a lot of these songs has come from, which, so I watched that a couple months ago. And when I went back and revisited these two albums for this podcast, I'm like, I understand where these songs have come from and why they're doing what they do and particularly brothers. So like it's, it's a great song. It also is a highlight of the unplugged album. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Oh yeah. And there's this kind of cool moment when, uh, they get toward the end when Staley sings his part, just the way that Cantrell and Staley kind of look at each other. It's just kind of like, wow, like we just had a moment, you know? Um, well, yeah, on that, on that unplugged version, um, there's a part that, um, Lane Staley sings. I don't think he actually sings on the record, but in the unplugged version, they drop out all the music, and it's just the two of them singing. That's mm-hmm. really cool. Yeah, 
yeah, like I said, if you can go watch that Sammy Hagar, Nancy Wilson one with them, it's yeah, and Icons is great because like it's there's no questions. It's just him talking for nope. like ninety minutes. Yep. Him narrating the story of his life. All right, Jason, got me wrong. Is song number two. What are your thoughts on it? Ah, uh, man, great song. Like this is another MTV radio friendly track. Uh, has a nice. I say this a lot, bluesy lick going with it because you can see very clear that Control was had some uh, blues background. It's got Control singing again. It's almost the Jerry Cantrell precursor to a solo album. Um, good hook on here. Uh, they duet well. Um, man, strong vocals on on both Lane and Control on this one. Like, I, it's just, it's a good. I mean, you see why they released this. Is why it was a kind of a radio friendly song, and. Um, I mean, it's good. There's not a whole lot of, of more details on that one other than I, I love the vocal duets on this one. Ian? Got Me Wrong was the first Alice in Chains song I think I ever actually heard. Wow. Because um, it was, it's in the film Clerks. Yes. And, uh, I was a huge fan of Clerks back when Blockbuster Videos existed. Um, <laughs> I, think I, I think I rented clerks 50 consecutive times i would rent wow. it bring it back rent it again so it was in that and it actually drew me to the band but I, so that i have a particular affection for the song but it's such a great song i mean definitely deserved to be the single uh because it, it does have that radio friendly vibe to it but they just all kind of really gel together musically on this in a great way you know the drums the guitars the bass really just mesh perfectly you can see why this is on the Unplugged album, too, right? Because it lends itself great for that platform. From Again, the yeah. vocal duets, vocal harmonies to the stripped-down instrumentation in it. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and Cantrell wrote it about a girl he was dating at the time that he broke up with and just kind of how people try to think they can change you, but they can't change you. They're wrong. <laughs> very right. uh, very succinct there, very kind of straightforward. One of my favorite songs by them. It's a top fiver for me. It's a good one. It's a good one. The no song number three is Right Turn. I'm going to throw to you, Mr. Rice. Oh, this is uh, what they termed Alice Mudgarden. <laughs> it's um, Alice in Chains with uh, Mark Arm from uh, Mudhoney and uh, Chris Cornell, Soundgarden. So that's where that all comes from. Yep. But this this is my favorite track on the on the EP. Um, that, that whale that chris cornell does uh on on the outro part of this song is unbelievable to me i, I wait for it every time to this day you know I, I just think it's so great the whole song uh in general is great but uh, chris cornell if you had to do a retrospective of, of chris cornell's best stuff i would throw this in there uh, absolutely without question so this is ian this is your favorite song on this one yes i'm starting to pick up on your musical proclivities for sure, because with Three Snakes and One Charm, so nobody gets on me social media. <laughs> I'm starting to very pick up your musical taste. Um, I think Chris Cornell really makes the song on this with his backing vocals. I think it's, I mean, you know it's Chris Cornell, very strong, very powerful, kind of like the Ann Wilson part on uh, on Brother. Yes. Um, I, Unless I'm looking at this song when it comes up, I almost mistake it for the next song, I Am Inside, because the lyrics sound like they're from a song titled I Am Inside, but it's great. Like I love I love um I love Cornell on this one, man. I think this is, is really cool because he he makes the song. I think no offense, Ian, it would be re relatively a basic song, 
um, without the Cornell backing vocals on it. I could I could see that. I but I do think in this one of Lane Lane Stanley's lyrics in this, uh, we're about as low as we can get. Like you believe oh, yeah. that you believe that when he says that. It's 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 yeah. powerful. Actually, I was just going to point out that's a Cantrell. Cantrell wrote every all the lyrics and music except for song number four. Huh. Yes. Which I well, which didn't. makes sense because it's a lot darker than the other songs. Yeah. So yeah, that's what I was going to say. Number four is "Am I Inside," and this is a very dark, dark and haunting song. Um, and it's the longest mm. one on there, five, a little over five minutes, which most of the rest of them are considerably shorter than that. Um, yeah, I've always thought this one was just pretty. Pretty dark, Jason. It ain't the size that matters, David. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, I hundred uh, percent agree with you, though, David. Uh, very much darker than the ones before it, and uh, not until I did a little research did I realize this was the 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 lyric, the sole song that the lyrics were penned by uh, Lane. So I understandably a little bit darker, but all uh, makes sense. Yep. Definitely Uh, finish finish on a low point and a high point simultaneously. It's very odd because it's such a great song. Well, you know, it is a good song. And so uh, like guitar, there's, there's more individual note or string picking on the whistle versus strumming. And you also got the added piece of the piano. So you really have these two string instruments doing notes versus chords and and kind of strumming, which is cool, which adds the, the darker element really. And then you've got a, a very restrained Ann Wilson doing backing vocals on this. Her vocals are not strong and as prevalent to the point of they were on Brother either, which really brings, again, the emotion and the darkness with that song to, to really where it is. Like, it's not like a funeral dirge, but it's like very, like, I could see this being, you know, used for very sad, sad situations. Good song, though. I, I dig it, man. The thing, The thing I think that's so great about and Wilson on these songs is she's not trying to take over. It's just very subtle in the background and which is obviously yeah, she's not, not the star. Yeah. Obviously not she's something, not something that she's used to doing. Um, and that is going to lead us to just a train wreck, a total train wreck known as, <laughs> known as, known as love song, which is a hidden <clears throat> track. And it is everybody. It's not Tesla or the cure. Yeah. Cover. And it's, it's, There's a reason why this track is hidden. Yeah, it's <laughs> everybody is playing a different instrument than what they normally play, and then you have Sean Kenny, Sean Kenny singing on a megaphone. Um, I I don't really know what to say other than this has got to be some type of inside joke. Um, yes, and Ian, if you wouldn't mind, can I can I spout on this one first? Oh yeah, absolutely. So my first thing is like, this sounds like something I would have made in junior high with all the fart noises and all the weird stuff that's going on with it. And really, what the hell is the lyric? Kiss the midget. So what the it hell? It's captivating though. <laughs> I'm done speaking about it. Your turn. That's all you had on that one? That's it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it, to me, it's like a, I don't know if you guys you remember, I'm sure you do, but a lot of when the when the uh, the nineties was big for the hidden track on CDs and, and yeah, stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of the hidden tracks were, you know, silly stuff or throwaway stuff or just, you know, a, a goof the and first something. tool album. If you guys yeah. remember that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I remember the Nine Inch Nails did like uh, one of their albums has like nine 
you know, two second tracks of silence before it gets to the hidden track. Like they did all these weird things, these bands with the hidden tracks. I think this is just, you know, evocative of the time, just a kind of throwaway silly thing that they did as a hidden track. Cracker had a great hidden track, Euro Trash Girl. Um, at the end oh, of, I don't know that one. Oh well, maybe maybe I don't know that one either. <laughs> yeah, that was yeah. a great hidden track. Yeah, I obviously didn't look hard enough. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so. Um, just kind of a throwaway track at the end on an otherwise pretty serious EP. Right. Um, very, very interesting the way they did this whole thing. They did album, EP, album, EP. And then, um, mm. you know, then we, they took like what, 12, 13 years off. Um, which is, which yeah. is sad. You wonder what all could have been done, you know, in that time frame. even if they'd gone with another yeah. singer, but I, I think they did it the right way. Waiting to start it back up with William Duvall, but guys, this has been this has been fun. Um, we threw this together kind of quickly this week, and I knew you guys would do great and add better insight than I can. But uh, two very very stellar EPs that came out for um, a band that uh, went from being very prolific to non functioning like overnight. Mm. Yeah, and, and so my, like my if we're getting here to the close, let me give my mm-hmm. final opinion on on you know unrequested. But you invited me on here. This you have to suffer my wrath. <laughs> if you took Sap and Jar of Flies and, and threw the nonsense last songs off each one and, and meshed them together, and you had like an eleven or twelve song album, this is would be a clear cut masterpiece. Not only one of the greatest albums of the '90s, but one of the greatest rock records, maybe of all time. Right? Mm. Like, honest to God, this would been an all timer if you could take the take the crap and put all the good stuff together. Ian, what are your final I thoughts? Would, I would, I would agree with that assessment. I've always thought that like these, those two would kind of go together as a as a nice you know singular full album. Um, I did want to ask you guys real quick, just because it's always been, you know, we've touched on all a lot of the other uh, albums, but no one's really mentioned the Tripod album. And you, David, you had mentioned the you know album EP, album EP, and I feel like the Tripod. It was album is a is a is finally the uh, the acoustic elements and the heavier elements coming together fully. That um, I really like that album. I don't know. Um, there, what you there, guys think there, about, that one. I, about half of it, I really like. About half of it, I'm kind of mad on. I think mm. it's more, almost like a psychedelic album um, mm-hmm. to, to some yeah. degree. Yeah, that, but you could, you know, I mean, I was told kind of off the record that things were kind of a mess when they were when all that was you know being recorded um you know i don't think it's necessarily lane's best vocal effort um Mm. part of it i think is almost like a jerry Cantrell solo album um you know he 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 sings a lot more songs on there i think it's good um when it came out i really really liked it i don't like it as much like i said about half of it i think it's great about half of it sometimes is the production on it's a little muddy at times Mm. Yeah, I, I could see that. Yeah, and you know, a couple last thoughts on just Alice in Chains in general, if you guys will um, um, let me go here. But um, one, great soundtrack band, right? They were on three prevalent soundtracks in the 90s. Singles, you mentioned Clerks, what? right? And Last Action Hero, which Last Action Hero is an amazing soundtrack. It If that would have come out five minutes, five minutes, five years earlier with that lineup, that would have been listed as probably one of the greatest soundtracks or rock soundtracks of all time. It is so phenomenal, but they're a great soundtrack band. 
And, um, you know, the 90s were also a time for super groups of these, you know, quote unquote grunge bands, which I don't think Allison Chains is grunge. But, you know, you had Mad Season, which Lane Staley sang vocals on. You had Temple the Dog. You almost had your super group that you, I forget what you just called it, Ian, with Ann Wilson and Soundgarden, everybody. <laughs> Alice, Alice Mudgarden. Alice Mudgarden. But, you know, it was, the 90s were definitely an interesting time, too. And Alice in Chains uh, put their stamp on a lot of things from uh, soundtracks to actually these, these super groups that were going around. Yeah, great, great band, underrated band. I think they should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but that's a discussion for another day. I do want to thank Ian and Jason for taking time out this morning to hop on here. As always, fellas, it was a lot of fun. And thank uh, you. Jason, we'll be thank hearing you, from you on uh, All Things Blues and Southern Rock podcast. Ian, yes, sir. you'll have some more Classic Wax episodes out, and uh, we're going to move along with State of America. So, uh I will be uh, Mark Ford. Mark Ford. Mark Ford. <laughs> yeah, that's that's going to be fun. Hopefully, like I said, it won't be the Chris we Farley have, show. We have one guaranteed listener for that episode. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, anyway, you guys have my favorite podcast. Let me. Well, I know you're closing. I'm, you guys are my friends, but I'm going to be honest. You guys have my favorite podcast outside of my own. So I love listening to you guys. Like, just keep churning out what you're doing. You guys are great at it. Oh shucks, Jason, you're going to tear me. Get oh, me Jason, out here. Always up. embarrass me. <laughs> all right everybody follow us on twitter at digital kill to like our page on facebook and uh, like our instagram page here to play us out one of my favorite songs by alice and chains rotten apple take care everybody mm-hmm.